Hey there, y'all. I'm Cassie. Welcome back to Where the Dogwood Blooms, where I explore the cultural heritage of North Carolina. Today, I'm talking to my baby sister, Kodecker. We're getting personal about our experiences growing up. Fair warning, our childhoods weren't easy. We had a toxic home life. Abuse, CPS, and the system were a part of our norm. And today, we're going to talk about all of it and how we walked away with a strong bond. Pull up chair and sit a spell. There's a lot to talk about. All right, Kodecker, so you're on here today, and I figured that we would talk about growing up here in North Carolina and what our experience is, because I feel like our experience is a little different than the average North Carolinian. Hopefully, it's a little different than the average North Carolinian anyway. Depends. <laughs> yeah, it depends on what you're talking about, I guess. So, do you want me to go first since I'm older, or do you want to go first? I feel like mine is worse, so I feel like you should go first. Okay, I should go first. All right, so I was born when my parents were 17, and Daddy got into a car accident when I was about two, and he had a brain injury from it. And, of course, nobody knew how bad it was at the time. Back then, he was in the Coast Guard. He got, so he got kicked out of the Coast Guard. Him and my mom separated, and my mom and papa took me and brought me back to Canton. Daddy got real bad into drugs and drinking, and um, Daddy was pretty rough with me. And I mostly lived with Mama and Papa, but every once in a while, Daddy would come get me to move in with him. And it was like every time I would move in with him, DSS would step in and put me back with Mama and Papa. And so I remember, like one year, I skipped, I went, I changed schools, God, like eight times, because it was like I would be at Meadowbrook, and then. Daddy would come get me, and then I would end up at, you know, um, what it, what is it, North Canton? I ended up at Bethel. I went to Waynesville at one point that year, and every time DSS would come get me, Mama and Papa would put me back in Meadowbrook. So it was like I was constantly switching um, schools. Daddy was dating this awful woman, but she had two sons that I loved, and but she was pretty rough with me too, and Mama called my mom. And was like, you need to come get Cassie. Because if you don't come get Cassie, bad things are going to happen. Like, she needs to be with you. So, when I was about eight, I moved in with mom. And, you know, my mom is like the hardest working person on the planet. Like, she's just, uh, she works at GE. She builds airplane engine parts. She's been there forever. But she wasn't around a lot. So I was by myself or with a babysitter most of the time. On the weekends, I was always um, with Evan at Aunt Sandy's house. Um, and every school break, I went home to the mountains. And uh, Daddy got remarried when I was nine. Daddy had been rough with me when I was little, but I'd never experienced, like, abuse until he got remarried. I think I was about 10 the first time that I got I got slapped in the face, called a bitch, and uh, Mama, she saw my face, like, right after it happened, because this happened in the truck on the way to Mama and Papa's house, and she saw my face, and uh, I went and locked myself in the bathroom with a rotary phone, drug the rotary phone into the bathroom and called my mom to come get me, and um, that was that was his wife who did that. That wasn't him. But she manipulated him into believing that somehow this was my fault 
you know, I, I was like, what, nine, 10 years old. She manipulated him into believing that this, this was somehow my fault. Daddy didn't speak to me for months. And things just continued to go downhill after that. It was like every time I turned around, either I was, I was being like physically abused or I was watching you get neglected like the older I got. It was almost like when I turned 18, it was like the greatest day of my life because I could finally just, I didn't have to put up with it anymore. That's what my childhood was like. That's, you know, it was rough. It, it wasn't easy. Thankfully, I had my mom. I had my mom and though me and mom had, you know, a rough relationship, not rough, like physically, but just hard. Her and I had a hard time getting along together, but she looked out for me and she protected me and she spoiled me. You know, we just bumped heads all the time, but you didn't have that. No, I assume. Well, I shouldn't assume, but most people know, like the term half siblings so you know we're half sisters we have same dad different moms but you know that's never we've never took it as like we're half siblings you know like we've always taken it as like that's my sister and we've never talked about it otherwise so yeah um people that don't know again we have the same dad different moms I think the the first time that like I noticed that like things were different I think the the biggest fight that I like very first remember I can't even tell you how old I was but like I remember we lived in Florida and um we were staying at home me and my other sibling uh we stayed at home by ourselves because my mom was a bartender and my dad was the quote-unquote bouncer for the bar that she worked at so they would leave and they would leave us at home in Florida alone a lot while they went out and worked and did whatever else they were doing and so I remember one night my mom and dad came home my mom was really drunk and um, my dad was drunk too and they got into this like really big fight and I can remember them like I would look out my bedroom window and I remember them my dad was chasing my mom like around the car at the time and um, he shoved her and she fell and um, hurt or broke her knee and I can remember like that was the first time that I called you it was like just help you know like I couldn't get them to stop fighting. It was like, no matter what I did, they weren't stopping. So I think that was the first time that I actually, like, called you for help. I remember that. That was, Bug was about two at the time, which means I was probably 23. And I can remember getting that phone call. And I can remember you guys were just, like, crying and like freaking out and you were locked in the bedroom and I remember telling you guys like okay take daddy the phone tell him Cassie's on the phone and then go back to your room and lock the door and so you guys took daddy the phone I got on the phone and immediately like his demeanor changed because I could hear him yelling up until the point that he got on and I can remember telling him, like, I, I don't know what's going on, but you can't have my sister locked up in a bedroom, terrified and scared that, you know, like, this isn't okay. If it doesn't stop, I'm going to call the cops. Like, you have to quit. And daddy wasn't someone that you could tell what to do. Not at all. Like, daddy did what he wanted to do. When I got off the phone, 
I can remember being worried all night long. And the next day he called me and he thanked me for calling him and telling him that enough was enough. I think it was always like hard for me growing up because like at the time, of course, I was a kid. I didn't realize like my parents were doing drugs and alcoholics until I got, you know, old enough to realize what that meant. And I think it was like dad always had this fine line of being like either a raging asshole when he would drink or he was funny and bubbly and just like so fun to be around and I always remember like I feel like that laid on like who my mom was at the time because like she was so easy to make him mad and if he wasn't around her or like the shenanigans wasn't happening he was just so funny to be around and like fun and just could make the room spin oh yeah they had a extremely toxic relationship like extremely and everybody always places the like full weight of that on the dude yeah but I can remember like I want to say I was about 10 and daddy mama and papa had given daddy enough money to start a business and mama and your mom didn't get along Mama ended up leaving the house, her own house, because that's daddy and your mom were living there to go work as a CNA, as a live-in CNA with um couple older couples who, you know, were coming to the end. And um your mom, daddy, and papa were going out working every day and they were leaving at like six seven in the morning and not coming home till eight nine o'clock at night papa would get home a little earlier but here i was alone with you know a a baby maybe i was 11 when this happened anyway this happened this went on all summer and so i i didn't know how to cook i know how to make ramen canned soups and ravioli and that kind of thing um i didn't have a decent meal all all summer unless mama um the few occasions she came home, she would cook. I was stuck with a baby all day, changing diapers, making bottles. And that's what I did all summer long. I, what made it even worse is I would get sent to bed almost immediately after they came home. And when I went to bed, they would make steak. They would make shrimp. They would make a uh, cake or whatever. And I would get up in the morning and there would be none left. I can remember... They were making brownies one night and I could smell it. And I had been crying all day because here I was with this baby. I barely knew what I was doing. I was way too young for that. And and it just hit me that day. Like I had spent all day crying. I was actually in bed, when I believe, when they got home. And um, so I get up and I go to daddy and I'm like, every night you come home and you eat like a king. And you send me to bed every night. And I mean, I was in tears and daddy was just so sweet about it. And I, but I was angry, you know, as angry as a little kid can be like, and looking back on this, I'm like, I don't think I ever saw my children this serious at 11 years old. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I, I was crying and, and daddy was like, I'm so sorry. No, you can have a brownie. And your mom like just started being so mean she called me and i basically was like no i don't even want a brownie i'm going to bed like i just wanted to make a point 
and she called me a bitch. And son, when daddy heard her call me a bitch, he smacked her so hard, it busted the blood vessel in her opposite eye. And you would have thought, like, that would have been, to me, that would have been a signal that relationship should have been over, first of all. Second of all, she shouldn't have been mean to me. You know, everything about that, that was wrong, you know? Yeah. But instead of letting it go, she can't, comes into the bedroom where I'm laying down, turns on the light, grabs me by the front of my shirt, pulls me real close, and is pointing at her eye and telling me that it is my fault. And daddy had to come and grab her and pull her out of the bedroom as she was like spitting, cussing at me because somehow it was my fault. And that's the first like really violent thing that I can remember happening between the two of them. I remember a a lot of violence and I feel like when you talk about domestic violence, most people think that it's the man and then like the situation for like our parents well not our parents but my parents like dad had his fair share of doing shitty things like oh yeah yeah but my mom like toxic grew out of her asshole i'm telling you like she was just tossing to a point like it was like how can someone be like that you know like at what point does it stop And I feel like, and I, well, I don't feel like, I know that, like, watching them growing up until the point that dad passed away, even, like, I carried that toxicity into my adult, young adult life. Like, I'm 27 years old, and I had a terrible domestic violence situation um, up until six years ago. So I feel like watching that and thinking that, or them making it believe that it was okay. I brought that into my adult life, thinking that it was okay for, like, men and women to beat on each other. It's not just you. I don't know if you know this or not, but when I was young, before I got married, I dated somebody, and I had a very toxic relationship with them. And I kind of thought it was okay for people to treat me like that. But I would fight back. Like, they would do awful things to me, and I would fight back. It only took a couple of months of that for me, for me to be like, no, absolutely. Like, this is not me. I'm not tolerating this. I'm not going to be in a toxic relationship. I will not be abused. I dealt with enough of that growing up. And so I married Brandon and Brandon is not like that. Brandon has never put his hands on me out of violence. He is, you know, and so I very quickly learned it took one, that one time and I was like, no absolutely not see whereas for me like I thought it was normal and I never fought back I never fought back until you know my oldest son was born and it took one time of um his father laying hands on him and I was done I let it escalate to a point for myself that it should have never went to and I allowed him to do terrible awful things to me But all it took was one time of him putting his hands on my son, and I was like, I'm done. That was my breaking point. See, you, to me, you got lucky in that at home, I don't think you were ever, like, physically abused. Like, there were things that were rough that happened that upset me or that I found out about, but they weren't flat-out abusive. 
Yeah. I got lucky in that I was never neglected because I lived with mom or I lived with mama and papa. You know, after I moved to Wilmington, I wasn't, I was visiting. You know, it wasn't my everyday life. and, And I went through physical abuse in those periods, but I was never neglected. My mom made sure I, w- I was fed and I had clothes that fit and I had things, but you were neglected. Whereas you were abused when you were with mom, well, my mom and your dad. Right. Yeah, our stories definitely differ there. And I don't feel like, I'm not saying we weren't neglected when I was younger, but I don't feel like the neglect really started like majorly up until like daddy passing. Oh, I don't think you were neglected as badly when dad was alive, but there were definitely things like I can remember times when I had to buy Christmas presents because you guys weren't going to have anything for Christmas. Birthdays that were basically the same thing. You weren't going to get anything unless I took you. I don't know if you remember this or not. I think you do. You were little, like maybe three. It was right around your birthday and they didn't have any money buy your presents so I are you talking you. about when you took me to toys r us and i got my power rangers metamorphosis <laughs> yeah go on. i remember yeah. that thing I, that I, was my favorite present ever i took you to uh chuck e cheese we went to chuck e cheese and then we went to the park we went to human gray park in wilmington and then i took you to toys r us and let you pick whatever you wanted and that's what you got was that power ranger <laughs> Boy, I remember I sat up all night tearing that thing apart and putting it back together. It was the coolest thing that I've ever had in my life. I wish I could find another one, honestly. That thing was badass. That is hilarious. I can't believe you remember that. Yeah, but I I mean, so there was stuff like that. And then I can remember um, head lice. Every time I turned around, if I came and visited, you guys had head lice. And, And it was so bad you could see it. This was like, I could be standing next to you and look over and see your hair moving. And so I would have to go treat your head for lice. And I swear that probably happened six or seven times before daddy died, you know? Um, So there were, there were little things, you know, to me, that's unacceptable, but you know, daddy had brain damage and I always try to remember that, you know, daddy had brain damage. There were things that he was deficient in. And I believe that that was just one of them. He just didn't notice. I feel like dad's problem too was like, dad had a problem running. He would never face a problem head on. He always ran from it. Yes. And then he would wait for it to die down and then he would return. Yes. And like, that was the worst thing for me growing up because like, you were talking about changing schools a lot. Like, I remember changing schools so much. And now like, as a young adult, I look around at all these people with like, lifelong friends and I just I get so mad and like hurt at the same time because like me and my best friend we just kindled about a year ago and I'm so thankful for her but like I wish that I could look back and be like oh yeah I have lifelong friends like I've known them since I was a kid like we grew up together and I'm always so envious of the people that have that because I wasn't given that opportunity because we moved so much like, oh, yeah. bounce between here and Florida all the time. I have the same thing. And what's weird about that is, is I moved away early enough to create that for myself. And it was like, I couldn't establish healthy 
friendships with other people. And I look at Brandon and Brandon has a group of about 15 friends. They've all been friends for years, some of them going all the way back to elementary school. They still get together and spend time with each other. They text each other and call each other. And I don't want to say that I'm like, that I wish he didn't have it. I'm glad he has it, but it does make me go, wow, I wish, I wish I had that. And I don't. Yeah, it's, it's a lot. Um, but like back on the, the like growing up topic, I think, um, I don't think that I ever noticed, like there was little altercations here and there that I remember, like my parents doing stupid shit, but I don't think honestly, like things were super bad to the point like I remember up until like a year before dad passed away well at that point I, I think it was coming to an end and it was because I remember I was I was 11 or 11 or 12 I had just started my period in middle school I remember calling dad and like crying on the phone begging him to come pick me up from school because I just started my period and I was traumatized um <laughs> so I remember going home and I laid in my room and I can remember my mom and dad getting into a fight and we had a sectional at the time that like hugged our wall and like if you crawled behind the sectional there was like this hole behind it that you could like sit in and nobody would know you were there so I can remember crawling behind that hole and um I just sat there like listening to my parents argue and I remember my dad saying that it was done like they were getting a divorce it was over with I remember just sitting back there crying and then coming out and my dad looked at me and he was like, you know, like, if me and your mom are no longer together, like, where do you want to go? And I remember just saying, like, I wanted to be with him. Like, I didn't care where we went. I just wanted to be with dad. After that day, it was like everything just got worse. Like, I was home. I remember my mom and dad got into the worst altercation, like, physical altercation. And I can remember my mom hitting my dad so hard that he fell over. I remember she went into her room and I ran out and I laid on top of my dad, like asking if he was going to be okay. Like, is he okay? And uh, my mom came out with a gun and I remember that she was going to shoot him. Like, that was it. And I just remember laying on top of him, like begging her not to do it. And uh, she couldn't cock the gun, and that's what saved my dad. And I remember my dad, like, getting up and getting the gun away from her and basically, like, grabbing behind her arms and, like, holding behind her and squeezing her until she just, like, gave out. And I think that was, like, the most traumatizing thing that, like, had ever happened. And now, like, looking back at it, like, you don't realize when you start developing depression and anxiety and PTSD until like you're grown and you talk about it and you're like, well, where did it stem from? And then you talk about all these stories and you're like, wow, like that really changed the chemistry in my brain. Definitely. I mean, your home is supposed to be a safe place and I've always tried my best to make it that way for, you know, bug and bell. I want them to be, happy and content at home they should know that this is a place of safety when they come here everything is okay and when I was with daddy and your mom it never felt that way it was always like when is the next bad thing gonna happen and I can I can remember atrocious things like I remember um, 
I was in ninth grade and uh, I was staying. Daddy had just moved back to Wilmington or maybe not. He, you know, he was back and forth between the beach and the mountains there for a while. Um, but he was living in uh, Rocky Point, Rocky Point or Curry one. And I'll, I was staying um, with y'all. And every time your mom would come pick me up, if she didn't get out of the parking lot before the school buses, she had like a full-blown meltdown. Yeah. And um, this particular day, I had we had gotten let out of class late. I had to go to my locker, and I had borrowed someone's notes. And I'm, so I'm standing there in the breezeway waiting for them so that I can give them back their their notes because I needed them to copy them down and they were going to need them to study so I'm waiting there and she is sitting in the parking lot staring at me blowing the horn and so as soon as I hand the notes over I run to the truck and um there's four of us in the cab of the truck you know it's you and your sister sitting between and I'm at the end and she's on the other side and we're waiting in line and the buses start going and when the buses start going your mom starts calling me names. Um, she slaps me. I'm trying to get out of the truck. Like, I was just going to get out of the truck. She grabs me by my hair, pulls me over top of you and your sister. And I am, like, tripping. Like, I mean, I can't move. And if I do move or if I try to, you know, retaliate, I'm laying over top of you and your sister. You guys are small. You were probably... A year old, maybe. You, I mean, maybe two. Like, you were, you were small. And finally, she had to go. And when she had to go, she had to let me go. Well, I jump out of the truck. And I run into the Trask Middle School parking lot. And she pulls up behind me, gets out of the car. Um, she's chasing me. And about that time, a teacher opens the door. They had been standing there watching what was going on. And I run inside, and the teacher shuts the door, and I turn around and watch, and watch your mom get in the truck and drive off. And called my mom. My mom come and got me. I mean, she ripped my, literally ripped my hair out at flip. And uh, mom dropped me off at home. She said she was going back to work. She drove to daddy's house hemmed your mama up and told her if you ever put your hands on my kid again I'll kill you and see I didn't know that until I was much older and daddy told me about that I had no idea and I can't remember your mother putting her hands on me again after that I can remember her trying to get daddy to um, instigating and manipulating and trying to get daddy to fight with me but I don't remember her doing it after that yeah, I feel like, um, I don't know, like, physical, it was never physical between, like, my parents with me. I mean, it was physical with them together. But I don't know, like, most of my trauma comes from watching them, like, I can remember my mom from the span of, you know, again, 11 or 12 to the time I was 18, like, I watched my mom overdose at least three times. That was traumatic in itself, and then, you know... Watching them fight. They had these terrible, awful fights. And like I said, like, watching that stuff and then going into my adult life, like, I saw that shit and then growing up thought it was okay. Daddy dying 
was extremely traumatic for me. Yeah. Like, so daddy got in a car accident in February of 2009. You guys were in Florida at the time. And all of our family tried to get, bring daddy home, transfer him to a hospital here. Your mom wouldn't have it. Um, I would try to call and get information. Your mom told them not to give uh, information. I was supposed to go through her. Karen would have to call and get information on daddy and give it to me. Your mom was lying to me. She was telling me that daddy was waking up and talking to y'all and he was getting better. Um, he was in a coma for until April 16th. We got to go down there twice. Um, the first time we went and we spent a few days when the accident first happened. And then, um, we went down there when he died. And the first time we went down, daddy and I hadn't spoken in a year. You know, I, I finally just reached this point with daddy and your mom where it was like, okay, this is impacting my children. And I just couldn't do it anymore. I, I could not let something disrupt my children's lives. I was not going to allow them to have PTSD. I wasn't going to allow them to deal with anxiety and, and all the miserable things that, you know, I've had to deal with since I was a kid. I just wasn't going to do it. So daddy and I hadn't spoken. And when I got there, I was just expecting for it to be a motorcycle accident, you know, like no big deal. And when I walked in, the top of his head was swollen. It just broke me to see my daddy that way, you know, and I spent all these years mad at him. I blamed him for not only the things that he did wrong, but for the things your mom did wrong. I blamed him for not protecting me, you know, because I'm the one who went through the physical stuff, you know. And, and I placed all of the blame for that at his feet. And I can remember only hurting, but I was mad. And when we went back down, I was just so confused because, you know, your mother had been telling me that daddy was waking up and talking and he was getting better. And so um, me and Aunt Karen spent the night with daddy I'd wanted to stay by myself but I think Aunt Karen was worried about me so she stayed too before the neurologist left he came in and and I wanted to know you know I don't understand how he was getting better and now he's he's dying and he was like honey he was never getting better and I was like what there was one of those little bite box things in the room and he put up um a normal brain scan and then he put up a brain scan from daddy's first accident when I was a baby and he was like you know you're lucky that you had your dad at all and he showed me the brain damage on that first image and he was like your dad should have died he was a walking talking miracle and then he pulled up the next scan and he was like honey there is so much damage your daddy he's He's not going to live through this. The only thing that is keeping him alive is the machines. And when he told me that, and, and when I realized, you know, he told me the how bad the brain damage was the first time and that I'd ever realized that there was actually something wrong with daddy. And um, after doing research on it, I discovered, you know, daddy couldn't age. Um, he never matured. He was stuck. I mean, he might have been 40-something years old, but he was stuck at 19 years old. And he never got the opportunity to mature like the rest of us. The guilt 
and misery that I felt. I mean, I carried that with me for over a decade because I, I had been angry at him for things that probably weren't his fault. I don't know, watching dad pass, like, that was definitely hard. That, uh, to this day, I mean, that happened in 2011, to this day, like, anytime. Happened in 2009. My bad, 2009, duh. I'm thinking of when I got put in foster care. You know, so to this day, like, birthdays and, and Easter and, you know, the day that he passed and all that stuff, like, I don't know. I just remember that entire event. It brings it back up. Time. I I crawled in bed with him when he was dying. And I can remember. I'm terrified of dead bodies. I've only touched two in my entire life. Um, Papa and Daddy. And when they laid Daddy out at the funeral home, I couldn't let him go. I couldn't stop touching him. I couldn't let him go. I mean, they literally had to drag me away. They made me leave. And I still dream about it. I don't ever dream about Daddy being alive. I dream about flashes of him being in the hospital and and flashes of him being laid out before he was cremated. That's what I dream about. I always get, like, so mad and envious of you because, like, you have all these memories of Dad, whether they're, like, bad or good. I mean, at least you have the memories. And to me, like... Even, like, now, like, I feel like I'm forgetting him, and it makes me so sad. Like, I can't remember what he looks like unless I look at pictures of him and, like, his voice. It's all seared in my brain. I remember Daddy so well, and, like, you've heard me say this a million times. Like, as far as I'm concerned, I'm I'm Daddy. I'm I'm the good parts of Daddy, not the bad ones, you know (laughs) what I mean? But, like, I'm, I'm fiery. And I don't let anybody push me around. And, you know, sometimes I'll let my mouth write checks that my ass can't cash. But I, you know, that's just who I am. Protective. I'm overprotective. Like, I just, I'm very much so like daddy. And I try to honor that part of myself. I, I used to, especially when I was angry, I didn't like that part of myself. And I wanted to get rid of it. And now I embrace it. I mean, you know, daddy's gone. And... You know, I've, I don't have brain damage. I've, I've never hurt any, anybody who was innocent. I've never done any of those things. I'm not a drunk, I'm not a drug addict, but all of the good things about dad, I, I try to embody those things. I'm, I'm very, you know, affectionate. Daddy was very affectionate and I don't ever, ever deny somebody a hug when they need one, you know, and daddy can hug you and make you feel like everything, the whole world was going to be okay. I do remember that. I don't know. I just, I get upset and I think about it and I'm like, you know, like, he missed my graduation and, and Bubba being born and um, he missed me getting married and like all of these things. And like, even if the marriages didn't last, like he still missed them. And that's hard for me because I don't know, like I look at all these other people and I'm like, they get to tell me that their dad was there and stuff. And it just, it hurts because I didn't get that. And it's so hard for me because he passed when I was younger, so I don't really remember much. Uh, And then it was like, after he passed, my entire life got flipped upside down because, you know. That's what I was... Go ahead. That's 
yeah, that's what I was going to say is what's sad is, is for me, other than mourning, you know, my life continued to improve. And I don't want to say that was because daddy was gone. That is not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, you know, my life eventually got better. I've worked very hard to take care of my mental health issues that stem from a lot of the trauma that I went through growing up. You know, I have a happy marriage and my kids are doing good and everything for me has eventually come, you know, I broke the cycle. But for you, daddy died and then the neglect for you got worse yeah. to the point that DSS took you away. You know, so DSS stepped in when, uh, in 2011, um, I called DSS on myself because my mom just like she was on drugs really bad and she was jumping from men to men and at the time i was uh for the most part living with one of my best friends and his mom was something in itself because i mean we were skipping school all the time um i was 12 years old about to be 13 at this point um i was smoking weed i was having sex i was drinking here and there you know if i remember correctly your mom and his mom were hoping that you would get pregnant yeah um at 13 you know like and even now like Belle she just you know she's a teenager now but you know when she turned that age I looked at her and I was so envious of her and the life that she had because like I just remember if I had you know a good set of parents maybe I could have grown up like my nieces and that hurt for a long time tried to give you that I know you did I actually sued for custody over you and then DSS got involved well, I guess DSS got involved, like, right before I filed for custody of you. How that happened, uh, anyways, I, I called DSS on myself, and, um, you know, they came for a home study. You have to tell the story ran... about that. <laughs> I had just talked you into coming to see me, and I didn't tell you that I had called DSS. Um, and I knew that they were coming by, so I knew that if I had you there that, you know, I wouldn't be alone, so morning you had got there early that morning it was still dark outside and you had come in and um I had a doctor's appointment that morning and we I tried to wake my mom up and she wouldn't wake up and so you ended up taking me to my doctor's appointment where I I tried to wake her up yeah you thought it was like you thought she was dead and I went in and I tried to wake her up and couldn't get her up and I, I was like she's she's fine she's she's breathing she's good and then we went to the doctor's appointment so i remember her um she ended up showing up and like showing her ass at my doctor's appointment and yeah. uh you ended up taking me for lunch and telling her that you were going to take me to school and you took me to school and dropped me off and um you and my best friend ended up picking me up later that afternoon when i got out of school and you took me home and by the time we got home dss was there um, my mom was sitting on the couch with her mom and dad and, um, it was me and you and my best friend sitting there and, um, you know, she told me to leave. Yeah. She, she made me leave and you called me back. And, um, you know, so DSS, they ask you a bunch of questions and then they ask your parents a bunch of questions. And, um, I don't even at this point, like, remember the questions that I was asked so, so long ago, but I remember... Like, my mom being so mad. And, like, my mom had this way of, like, fooling people. At least yeah. she thought. So I can remember, like, 
the white DSS car sitting in my parking, like in my, you know, driveway at the time. And um, I locked myself in the DSS car and my mom made a complete fool of herself. Like, so she got mad at me. She chased me around the DSS car, like waving her cane at me. The yep. cane that she didn't even fucking need. And uh, I remember jumping in the DSS car and locking myself in there. You ju- you locked yourself in my car first. And I just, your mom your mom was threatening me with calling the cops and all kinds of stuff. And I was like, you need to calm down. You're acting like I'm going to drive off with her and get myself kidnapping charges. I'm not going anywhere. But she don't have to get out of this car until you calm down. I'm not sending her out for you to harm her. No. And I remember the DSS worker standing on the porch watching this happen. Yep. Went and filed for custody of you the next day, the next morning. So, yeah, she she made an ass out of herself, chased me around the car. Um, she ended up calming down. Um, the guy looked at me and was like, you know, and this is what blows me away after watching all of this shit happen. He made me stay the night there at her house. I don't remember me- that. Yeah. Made me swear that I wasn't going to run away. Stipulation was that she would check herself into a rehab for a month. And I had to go to a group home for a month. That is the reason that um, I filed so for custody. Is because if you got better, then I was allowed to go with her. Her grandparents, your grandparents would not take you. And they made it sound like you were the devil. My daddy was the devil. I was the devil. All of daddy's family were evil. And they weren't going to take you because you were just like him. Your mom agreed with that. And then I can remember you calling me from school and telling me that um, you had to go to a group home. And right then, I went and filed for custody. And mind you, again, 12 or 13 at this point, being called the devil by my mom's family. Anyways, I go to this group home. I was there for a week. It was so strict. Like, I just, it was baffling to me. Like, I go from, again, having sex, smoking drugs, watching my mom, doing, like, whatever I'm doing, to, like, this strict ass, like, you weren't allowed to cough, basically, without asking for permission. So I remember running away within a week of being there. And uh, Was Was it really that fast? I feel like it was longer than that. I remember... It might have been two weeks, maybe. I don't I remember, remember my mom checked herself out early. I know it wasn't the full month. Oh, absolutely not. Because the, um, now I could be remembering this wrong and I don't want to tell this wrong. But I remember I left and came back because we were living in Fayetteville at the time. We moved to Wilmington because Mamaw was in Wilmington. We had several aunts and uncles and cousins who were in Wilmington. And um, the attorney told me it would help if you live near more family. So we moved to Wilmington. I don't know how far that was from the point that you got taken, but I can remember getting the phone call from the attorney that you had run away. And he was like, do you know where she's at? And I was like, honestly, no. I was like, but I guarantee you I can find her. And he was like, where? And I was like, I'm not, uh uh-uh. No, I'm not telling people where to go look she'll run I'm not doing that I was and he was like well I'm filing for emergency custody you need to get up here now and I was like okay and I called a little boy that you'd been dating his mom 
is who I called. And I told her, they're saying that I can get emergency custody and I'm on the way. And I mean, I made it from Wilmington to Canton or to Waynesville in God, like five hours, four hours, like something crazy. I mean, I was hauling balls. And so I got there. And if I remember correctly, when I got there, I can't remember if you were. Did you show up at the attorney's office? No. So what had happened was, so when I ran away, I ran away from school. Um, It was a Friday. So this happened over the weekend. So I ran away on the weekend. Um, It was a Friday night. I ended up going to Sunburst and camping out. And I mean, like, this is the middle of what? End of February, early March when March. this happened. Yeah. Um, so it was snowing in the mountains at this point, um, at least that first night. So I'm like camping out in the snow with my little boyfriend at the time. And, um, we ended up getting word that the cops knew where I was. So we ended up like, I remember I'm in the floorboard of my, um, friend's car. And I remember going down the mountain as the cops are going up the mountain. Um, yeah, it was crazy. So I ended up staying with my boyfriend at his house for like a night and then um I remember calling you and our cousin Kit and his girlfriend or wife at the time um you know was staying at our family not about you I forgot about you calling me um so I told I called you I told you that I was going there um and you said was okay I have to I was go on the way yeah you were like okay um I have to go to the attorneys real quick and then I'll be by to get you and so I remember, like, um, I was sick at this point, so you got um, our cousin to go get me medicine. He brought me medicine back, and I locked myself in the very back bedroom of the house. And I can remember you coming there, and we slept in that back bedroom for, like, what, a night or two with the gun next to us, like, freaking out because well, I knew that we had, well, I knew that I'm talking about the first, like, night, the first yeah. few nights. Like, we were freaked out. And you had to take care of the stuff with the lawyer. So, like, I went and got my stuff, and I had a duffel bag of shit that I couldn't even wear or that didn't even fit me. Um, yeah, we burned the granny panties. <laughs> we did burn the granny panties. <laughs> I forgot about that. We burned the granny panties. And we were back there, you know, chopping wood, thinking we were awesome. Anyways, uh, we yeah, were awesome. I was with you for that week that you had emergency custody of me, and then um, we went to court on that, that following Monday. Or Tuesday, whatever it was. And uh, I ended up getting placed in DSS custody. And so I was put in DSS custody till the time that I aged out at 18. And in that time, like, I remember when I first got taken, um, I remember you coming back to the lawyer's office because y'all didn't allow me to go. And uh, you looked at me and you were like, I tried um, and I'm going to keep fighting. But you have to go with DSS for now. And I remember sitting there like, bawling my eyes out I got taken to the DSS office and I sat in that office for hours while they looked for like a placement for me and um they ended up finding a placement for me and I remember getting Burger King before I went to the home that I was staying at and so I was in the home um for a couple months I think I want to say from March to I want to say August because I know that school had just started back. Um, I ended up getting taken out of that placement. You know, like, the foster parents weren't good. They were fighting all the time. They ended up getting a divorce. But um, 
I was getting drug tested, and around the time, I thought that I was smoking weed. Come to find out, it was oregano. That's a different story. Anyways, didn't fail my drug test, but told DSS that I failed my drug test for smoking weed because I was like, you know, like, if I'm going to get caught, I'd rather just be honest because they were all, you know, if you're honest, you're, you know, it won't be as bad on you. Bullshit. Anyways, so I ended up telling myself, and I got moved to a group home in Black Mountain. I remember, I can remember Black Mountain, and I can remember, I feel like I saw, oh, went to the one before that, too, but I can't remember which one it was, but I can remember coming to visit, and there were these big rooms, and there was all these kids in these one rooms, and so this one big room was broke up into, like, cubbies by, like, the way they set up the furniture, and they would put your bed in the center of it. And that's how you guys slept. Yeah. And I can remember seeing that and crying for like weeks after that. Like I could not believe. Yeah, that was Black Mountain. So my first group home was in Canton, North Carolina. Um, and in that group, that home, you know, I. So I was going to Pisgah High School at the time in this group, in this foster home. And I remember my mom being so mad that I was still going to Pisgah. So she made them take me out and try to put me in a different school. Well, there's only two high schools in Canton, unless you're talking about the alternative high school. Which, so that would make three. So Pisgah ran on a, um, I want to say at the time they ran on a, a six or an eight period schedule, whereas Tuscola only ran on a four block schedule. Um, so in a span of a day, I went from Pisgah High School to Central High School to Tuscola High School back to Pisgah High School by the end of the day because the other two schools wouldn't take me. And I remember when I had you for emergency custody, you were failing every class. Yep. And I made you, that week, we sat down and I made you retake. I went in and spoke to all your teachers. You had to retake tests, do some makeup work all this other stuff and by the time I left you were passing in every single class yeah because I mean I never went to school but um anyway so my first foster home I was in Canton North Carolina and then my group home I was in Black Mountain North Carolina I was there from August to January this group home I can't remember how many girls it was in the home but I think there was like maybe 10 of us um, we lived in rooms of three, so there would be three of us to a room, and then we would share a bathroom. You know, our rooms were barely big enough for our furniture. Like, we had, um, we were allowed a TV, we had a dresser, we had a nightstand and a bed, and we had a tiny closet. Um, and I remember hating like that because I had just, like, started getting, like, nice things. And I remember, like, my roommates would come into my room and basically, like, raid my shit and, like, yeah. take it for themselves. Yeah, I remember being so mad because I was like, like, I just got this stuff and y'all are already coming in here, like going through my stuff and being like, I want to wear this. I'm going to take this. And um, anyway, so it was a room broke down in three. And then on well, a they, campus, hold on, hold on. They have it basically set up like a communist little hole. You know what I mean? If 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 a kid in one of these orphanages gets something and you were lucky, um, you got money from uh, the VA for from daddy. And so you got your own check every month. And so you started being able to buy, you know, clothes and, and different kinds of things. And the other girls were allowed to just come take your stuff. 
Yeah. Because you weren't allowed to have something that you didn't share. Exactly. And I mean, like, there was like six or seven houses on the on the group heroin area and um we had like a gym and a and a church on campus and then we were allowed to attend our public high school so that was nice that at least at that group home i got to attend a public high school with other people so come january i ended up moving in with another single foster mother um and i moved into montreat north carolina that foster home honestly like it wasn't bad and i kept a relationship with her up until last year but I ended up, you know, like being a teenager, I was, I celebrated my 16th birthday with her. Um, so, you know, I was doing typical stupid shit that a 16 year old did. And the breaking straw for that foster home, um, I was sneaking my boyfriend over at the time um, while my foster mother was away at work. And, you know, she had enough of it. And I remember being so heartbroken when I got taken out of that home because I was like, you know, like. If this was any other circumstance and this was your actual mom, like, you would just be punished and that would be it. You know, like, at least you would get to stay. Yeah, that was something that bothered me, too, is, you know, at any point they could have moved you to Wilmington. They knew that I'd been fighting for you. Um, Daddy's family, multiple people stood up and tried to get you. And they opted to leave you in the mountains near where your mother was even though they knew she was a drug addict even though they knew that she i mean it's even written in the um the court paperwork that i read not that long ago that she refused to take any responsibility for anything she ever did um she continued to blame you or to blame dad or to blame whatever blame me whatever she wouldn't take responsibility for what she was doing wrong and yet they let this person dictate what would happen to you and thereby took you away from any of the norm, the normal things that you could have had during those yeah. years. And I mean, I even blame myself to a point because, you know, like they were listening to what I wanted. Like, and that's dumbfounding to me because at that age, I had no business telling anybody what I needed or wanted in my life. You know, oh. like. I was in therapy for traumatic things. Like, I was not the person that needed to be making life decisions for myself. Not only that, but you really needed someone. Like, it it particularly drives me crazy because I was willing to stand up and do what needed to be done. I mean, it, be it I was young and I was poor and I didn't have a whole lot. I was willing to do the things that needed to be done. Someone should have been going to therapy with you. Maybe not in with you. Maybe sometimes with you. You know what I mean? And showing you how it's done how you heal like working with you on all of these things and when you're in dss they don't do that you know they throw pills at kids and they're like oh this kid's been abused they have borderline personality disorder and load you up on medicines or whatever it may be and to me as a mom that's not how you fix things you have to build up that trust you have to build up that self-esteem there's all these different things that go along with it. And I feel like the system completely denies kids in, in the system those things. Yeah, it was hard. I mean, it was just always hard for me. Like, it didn't matter what you did. You could do one wrong thing and you were getting moved. And it was always hard for me because I was like, you know, like, if I was a regular kid in a regular home, like, I would be punished and that would be it. Like, you're not moving your child out of your home because they snuck a boy over or smoked a bowl you know like and I was getting moved out of whole areas for doing these things 
So I remember like I was with my foster mother from January to November. And in November, I got moved a week before Thanksgiving. And I remember this because I wanted to be like everybody else um, and get to go home or visit family for Thanksgiving. And because I was there, they had this two-week rule where you weren't allowed to leave campus for two whole weeks. And so I didn't get to spend Thanksgiving that year with my family or anybody that I knew because I wasn't allowed to leave the campus. And at this particular group home, like, I was in the middle of nowhere. I remember when I moved there, they told me, like, yeah, so remember, like, if you go to run away, you're in the middle of nowhere. So, like, no one can help you. And it always pissed me off that I was labeled a runaway because I wasn't even in custody when I ran away the first time. That, and, and the only time I ever ran away. Um, How does that work? I, I didn't know. So your mother surrendered you to the correct. the first one. So DSS was not technically involved at that point. Correct. Okay. All right. But anyways, so like I was able to run away. So they put me in the middle of basically nowhere. And at this particular group home, um, you shared a room with one other person. And then you shared a bathroom with three to four girls. Um, my cafeteria was on school campuses my church was on school campus my gym was on school campus my school was on school campus like anything that you could possibly think of that you might need was on campus the only times that you really got to leave were like if you were doing like going on outages and while I'm thankful that I did these awful like these amazingly cool things that I never would have got to do in a regular life. Um, and I'm very thankful for those moments. Like, those are some of the coolest moments that I have in my life. But still, like, you're living your entire life in one area. You know, like, I graduated from a private school with eight people. Yeah. So, like, that was just always hard. And um, so, yeah, I was there from November to the time I graduated. Um and I ended up moving back in with my mom. Um, it did not go well, if I remember correctly. It did not. No, I turned 18. I moved back home with my mom in like two weeks, three maybe after moving home. I remember coming home to her overdosing in our living room. And I was so mad because like my mom had this thing where she would get better and then she would get bad again and then she'd get better and bad again. And I remember, like, one distinct memory of us being in court and she being so, like, just out of it that I remember we're that. across from each other. And she's literally passed out during court. Yeah. And I'm like, y'all are fighting for what? Yeah, I remember that. And I can remember just being blown away that they were listening to her at that point and and I was like you know if you look at my background record if you look at my family it is very clear that nothing that this woman says is true yeah you know like I've I've never still to this day I've never been in trouble with law I've you know ne there's nothing on my record anywhere not medical not anything you know w with drugs none of it none of it and yet they listened to her because they were she was your mother and I'm like you know if you do this with all kids it's it's no wonder that there are so many kids who you know 
die when they're in DSS custody. There's there's no, no wonder that there are so many kids who, you know, are abused to death. Like, this explains so much. And I mean, I got lucky. Like, my foster parents, despite the arguing, like, I had good foster parents. Um, the group homes that I was in wasn't bad. But I mean, the first not all kid, not the others. You know, like, not all kids are lucky enough to say that their foster families weren't bad or that the group homes that they went to weren't bad. And thankfully, I can say, like, you know, they weren't always tolerable, but I was taken care of. Yeah. And I had uh, rights. Like, I got to have rights when you were there. Like, you were allowed to call me. I was left to visit. You know, like, um, I wouldn't have had that if I hadn't have sued for custody. That is the only reason that I got that. Yeah. And I was really lucky. Like, I was really close to my social worker. Like, I had a really good social worker. Yeah. So, not everything to do with me getting put in the system was bad, even though there was plenty of bad moments. It wasn't all bad. And I can't say that for, you know, everybody that's had to deal with DSS and custody issues. But I think the worst part for me was, you know, like, when I aged out at 18, like I said, I moved back in with my mom. But, like, I didn't know shit about shit. Like, I didn't know how to be an adult. I ended up coming into all this money. I fucking blew it. I wrecked relationships because I didn't know how to properly handle things. Like, I didn't know how to be an adult. I didn't know what being an adult was, you know? Like, I bought a car. I got mad. I ran my car into a tree when I was still in DSS custody. Like, I was doing dumb shit. And for anybody, I just don't understand why they don't set more people up for success. And this is how kids in foster care become statistics, you know? I think it's because they don't, like you, you had an out. You had me. Yeah. And, you know, the things that happened when you were in DSS care almost destroyed our relationship. You know, you came out of that and... Although up until the time that DSS took you, you and I were best buds and you listened to me and you trusted me and you depended on me. But when you came out of that, that all changed. It was like you treated me like a rebellious teenager treats their mother and you'd never treated me that way before. And, you know, so trying to tell you, hey, look, you need to do this and this. It was like I couldn't reach you anymore because you had in your mind, I'm grown, I can do what I want. And for you, you'd been, you know, lived in a situation that was so strict that you weren't going to listen to me. Nope. You didn't want to be told what to do anymore. And so how do you guide someone who's been through what you, you'd gone through, you know? And I think it's taken all these years for you to finally, like, trying to start listening a little bit you know what I mean like for you to finally go okay I actually do need some help here I do need some solid advice or or a little bit of guidance here um and let's be honest that's only been really in the last year I mean from the time that I was 18 to 25 was not good for me like no and here's something else you have a cycle like you do the thing that dad did and I think you're finally starting to grow out of that some where like you run away when things get hard or something happens that you don't like you run away and I feel like that's because you know that's what you you saw and learned 
you know, and um, you also perpetuate that cycle with your mom where you would get away from her knowing that that's what you needed to do, that that was what was good for you. But then you would go running back um, and just continuously that would happen over and over again. And so do you feel like now you've gr like grown out of that or do you see that still happening and playing out in your life? Like I said, up until last year when I was about 25, I was turning 26. Um, and even more so in the past couple of months, have I feel like I've gotten out of the rut of like running and hiding. And for me, like up until a couple of months ago, there wasn't a single thing that my mom could do that I wouldn't defend her on or make excuses for her or take her back and then you know me and you went to the mountains and we found out that she exhumed daddy's grave and for me like that was my breaking point yeah for me like I had had enough and I wasn't gonna allow somebody that could do something so cruel be allowed in my life anymore even my son's life you know like that was just my breaking point. And even now, like, I'm still figuring out my boundaries with people and, like, what I'm willing to put up with and what I'm not willing to put up with. But it literally took me 27 years and her doing that in the mountains um, for me to be like, you know, enough is enough. Like, I'm, I'm not going to let people walk on me anymore. I'm not going to let people realize that I'm willing to put up with anything because I'm not. Yeah, the, the thing in the mountains, like when we went up there and found out that she had taken daddy, that sent me to a very dark place. I mean, you know, you saw it like it, I was ready to. I'm surprised if the wrong person, if I'd run into the wrong person, I'd be in prison right now. Like I was in a very bad place when that happened. I came home and got myself back into therapy and... I went for a few weeks, got myself back calm, and looking back on it, I'm so upset that, you know, after all these years, she had something to hold over me. And now that daddy's gone, and, you know, I don't believe we'll ever get him back, I, you know, as far as I'm concerned, she's probably dumped him out on the side of the road or used him as kitty litter or whatever, you know, like, but it, it was almost freeing because now it's like, you know, you've taken everything. You stole the last year I had with my dad. You you completely destroyed my innocence. You know, you almost ruined my relationship with my sister. I had to go through trauma over and over again from the time I was nine years old until I was almost 30 at your hands. And now it's like, okay, well, now there's nothing left that you can do. Yeah. I feel like for me, like, looking back, it's crazy for me. So, like... She did the things that led me up into getting to DSS. When I turned 18, um, I watched her again overdose. I was in a very abusive relationship for four years, like very abusive. And I remember leaving that relationship and her telling me like, basically that I needed to get back with him because my son needed a father. And I like looked at her dumbfounded like, how could you look at your daughter and tell her that that's what she needs in her life so that her son isn't alone? So I, I put up with that and then, you know, like, just the blatant disrespect over the years and, like, crazy things and 
um even in this past year like she basically tried to steal my son away from me and like all of these things and it took her taking dad away again for me to be like enough is enough i'm done i, I pray that that's true because you know whenever she has access to you she has access to me and so when she hurts you it hurts me and i know that's crazy but and, and other people listening to this are gonna be like what well to me you know you might as well be my kid you know like i care about you and i have done things for you that only a mother does for their child and so when you get hurt it hurts me and i worry about you i worry about you more than i worry about my own kids like to me i know you shut your dirty mouth. <laughs> you do. Like, this woman's got the low jack on me. I could be at the food line and she'll be like, what you doing? Go and buy a tomato. Why are you texting me? The everything in. I'm just making sure you're safe. Shut at up. the food line. Yeah, okay. I mean, bad things happen. It doesn't short. Like, it gets on my nerves because you're all the time. You're not an adult. Bitch, I am an adult. I'm 27. I'm an adult. Like, I pay my own bills. I buy my own ass. I'm an adult. Yeah, but you also make do things. You still make decisions that make me worry. And I have to worry about you. And I have to be like, oh, God, is is Kodecker okay? Like, what's going on with Kodecker? Like, am I going to have to come, you know, play Superwoman today? Like, what's, you know, like, I can't help it. I you know? in, the, in the past year, though, despite the few hiccups I've had over the past couple of months, that, like, I've been doing better. You are. I will give you that 100%. You have, you are steadily getting better. But I always have to worry. Like I said, you know, in the past, it's always been this cycle. You'll get better for a little while and then you fail. And I know from personal experience why that is happening. You know, it happens in my own life. And historically, it's happened in my own life. It just happened on a much smaller scale. I'm not sure why, maybe because of mom or maybe because of, I, I th think, you know, mom and papa played a large role in that. You know, I always had some form of stability in my life. Thank God. You know, I, I, I cannot thank my mama and my grandparents enough for that. But you didn't. I was your stability. And how sad is that? You know, you were born when I was 14 years old and I was the stability in your life. Even, you know, at 17, 18, 19, 20, you know. All the way up, I was the stability in your life. To me, that's crazy. So I can understand the the seesawing and the back and forth, and I can understand it taking you longer. But I just worry. Can't help it. I think my favorite thing about you is that, like, no matter what, you always show up, and you're the one person in my life that it didn't matter how much we were fighting. It didn't matter when the last time we talked. It didn't matter what the last thing we said to each other. Like, you always showed up for me. And I knew no matter what happened that I could call you and you would do whatever you possibly could for me. Whether that be to talk on the phone with me or to show up and hug me or to give me a lecture or to tell me that it, you told me so. Like, it never mattered. You were always there for me. And I think... That has gotten me through more things than ever because no matter how alone I felt, like I knew no matter what that I had at least one person in, on my side. And my favorite story is always going to be the story of like 
you telling that little kid that you were going to beat his mom up over my bicycle. Like, you know, I ever hear crying and now you're bringing up a funny story. Oh, God. Like, when I tell people, like, my sister defends me, like, she has defended me from day one. Like, you are my rock and the only person that has ever been here. And, like, I can never thank you enough for that. For being, like, I know that you're my sister, but... And I think that people in North Carolina or anywhere, like, siblings show up and half the times it's sad because siblings have to become parents for us. And I'm just lucky that I had you because I can't imagine where I would be had I not. All right, you got to give me a second. <laughs> I love you so, so, so much, kid. Always. Always. Okay, so we're going to end there because I'm about to ugly cry. <laughs> so we will totally do this again. Maybe not about something sad, but we, we uh, usually have some pretty good jokes and stuff whenever we talk. So, yes, <laughs> we will make people laugh next time. Yeah. All right, kid. I love you. Go give uh, Bubba a big hug and some sugar for me. Yes, ma'am. I love you. I love you too, baby. All right. Bye. Thank y'all for joining us. I'll be back next Wednesday. Make sure you hit that subscribe button so you don't miss me. And if you're looking for more content, you can always head over to the blog at www.wherethedogwoodblooms.com. Y'all stay safe and I'll talk to you soon.